0: Today we hear from a university professor to learn about flu, also known as the influenza virus. Did you know you've a 1 in 10 chance of getting the flu? Did you realise it was as low as that? Are you curious to know how this virus so successfully eludes your immune system? Well, get ready for the latest news and research.
1: You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.
0: In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who for some reason or another find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. In times when illnesses like cancer can be treated, flu continues to knock down vast numbers of people today. Why is it that the flu vaccine that you had years ago offers you little immunity against getting the flu today? To answer these questions, today's show is devoted to the topic of flu and we hear from the professor of infectious disease informatics at the university of cambridge
1: we're going to listen to professor derek smith whose research helps us understand how the influenza virus eludes our immune systems he has special insight into how countries deal with the emergence and treatment of the flu roger went into town to chat with derek to learn more and here's a recording of their chat then we'll catch you up in about 20 minutes on science facts and fiction relating to the flu let's have a listen
2: The primary thing that we try to study here is why flu changes and how it changes. And we're interested in that because flu is a very important pathogen in its own right. It infects, on average, about 10% of the world's population every year. So it's over half a billion people each year that get infected. And kills maybe something like between half a million and and a million people each year. So when we talk about flu, this is not, oh, I've got flu, I'm going to go do this or I'm going to do the other. When people have flu, they're really ill. Yes. You know, this is one of the respiratory diseases that we have where we're really knocked off our feet for two or three days and then really can't go to work for, you know, maybe a week or something like that. So this this is a pretty nasty disease. And we are interested in flu because it is such a nasty disease, but we're also interested in it as a model system. And what we mean by this is as an exemplar system of other pathogens like it. But sometimes it's easier to work on flu than work on those other pathogens. So for example, the thing that's special about flu is that it evolves in our lifetimes and it evolves in important ways. Perhaps many people will know that every year, you know, in your doctor's office, it says it's time to get your flu jab. There isn't a sign up every year that says it's time to get your measles jab. In fact, the flu vaccine is the only vaccine where people get revaccinated every year. And that's because it's the only pathogen for which there is a vaccine where the pathogen changes over time. It evolves in ways to escape the antibodies and the T-cells that we have built up either from prior infections with flu or from prior vaccinations. In fact, most of the morbidity or mortality from infectious diseases today is caused by these type of pathogens. So the sort of pathogens that we knew as childhood diseases, things like measles and mumps and rubella, these are no longer problems anymore in parts of the world where we vaccinate because we vaccinate, and the vaccine works great. And we pretty much only have to vaccinate people once, or they get infected once when they were kids, which is why these were called childhood diseases. And then the pathogen really doesn't change very much at all. And so our immune system remembers what that pathogen is like. And if we're ever challenged with that pathogen in the future, it knows how to go after it, and it goes after it so quickly that we don't get ill. But the flu virus has evolved a different strategy, And the flu virus has evolved a strategy where it can change how it appears to the immune system over time. It's like it's evolved to be evolvable, and it does change. And so this is how come it can infect 10% of the world's population each year, which means that we all, on average, get flu about once every 10 years. Some people, some lucky individuals, never get it at all. But most of us get it, on average, about once every 10 years. And that's not because our immune systems forget or get weak and can't fight flu anymore. It's because the virus has changed. And there are other pathogens like this. They're called antigenically variable pathogens. That just means they change so they can evade the immune response. And other pathogens like this are things like malaria, things like HIV. These are also pathogens. And one of the things that makes it so difficult to have vaccines against these diseases as well is because they change. So... You design a vaccine, you put a particular strain of that pathogen in the vaccine, and then it'll work well for a while until the virus evolves and changes. It's a little bit like the way bacteria can get resistance to antibiotics.
0: Is it a selection process? It's
2: very much a selection process, that's right. Yeah, it is. The virus is changing to escape immunity. Which favors it. Which favors, exactly right, it favors reinfecting those individuals again. Oh my goodness. Yes, that's right. And flu is probably, I said it's a good model system as, v- as well as being a very important pathogen in its own right. Yes. It's also a great model system for a couple of reasons. One, it's very easy to manipulate in the laboratory. We can do all sorts of things with it. And it's also very easy to experiment with in the lab. There are good systems that we can test the virus in. And it's also probably the simplest of these pathogens that evolve like this. And so given that we know very little about this type of evolution of pathogens, I mean, we know a lot about it in the sense of what happens, but we're still in the process of trying to figure out why it happens and how it happens. And because it's one of the simplest of them, it's a great place to start. And so there are many groups around the world who study these types of pathogens and who use flu as a model system and hopefully by cracking flu and understanding the underlying evolutionary processes that it's going through how selection is operating in this case how it changes to help us make smarter vaccines to be able to better counteract flu and learn as a stepping stone how to address other pathogens that are like this as well that are more complex than flu in how they evolve. Okay, so the primary vision of our lab here is to try to understand the evolution of these type of pathogens, and ultimately to see if we can not only understand it, but can we predict how they're going to change? I mean, we could understand it, and it end up not being predictable because maybe it's just like you know, it's like a roulette wheel, and it's not predictable. Or maybe we can understand it to a level where we actually can have a good idea what it's going to do next.
0: But if I think evolution of human beings, I can see these monkeys stooping and then standing and then turning into a human being. How does that look on a flu?
2: The way that looks on flu, at least for this part of flu that we're particularly interested in, the part that escapes immunity,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's a protein that is... On the surface of the influenza virus, that is the primary protein that our immune system goes after. And it's sticking there, it is actually sticking, it's, this, it's these proteins that are like spikes on the surface of a virus. Okay. There's about 500 or so on a typical flu virus. The particular protein is called hemagglutinin, and it's the thing that antibodies that we generate go after, and what the virus has evolved the ability to do is to change that outer coat of that protein in a way such that antibodies that could recognize a previous generation of that virus in a couple of years can recognize it much less, and in another couple of years perhaps even not recognize it at all. So it's almost like the virus has evolved this ability to have a mask and that it can change that mask. So what actually changes? What actually changes is the surface of this protein, and and as you know very well, the protein is built out of amino acids with some sugars attached, but we just focus on the amino acids for now. And what is happening from an evolutionary process is that there are mutations in the genetic material of the virus that sometimes change those amino acids that are on the surface of the virus, on this hemagglutinin protein on the surface, those changes in amino acids change the shape of that hemagglutinin, and maybe the electrical charge in that region of the hemagglutinin protein, that means that antibodies can no longer stick to that surface. That's what's happening at the molecular level.
0: But but at some point, if it changed, it would cease to be able to do the job that it was meant
2: to be. Yes, and this is absolutely a a critical thing that you mention here, because the hemagglutinin protein actually has, let's call it, two jobs and a secret job that okay. it's trying to do. It has a thing on it called its receptor binding site. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what it's called. What it does is it's a very conserved part of that protein that's pretty close to the top that knows what particular molecules look like in our throat, and it's, in fact, a complementary shape to those molecules, and that allows the protein to bind onto those molecules That are on the surface of cells in our throat and then get into those cells in our throat and cause the infection. It needs to conserve that. It's absolutely critical Mm. because otherwise the virus can't get in. The -hmm. other thing it does is it has some other mechanism where once it gets inside the cell, so that it can really get inside the cell, out from this little capsule inside the cell. So it needs to conserve those two functions and the critical exposed function there is this receptor binding site. And then this sort of secret thing that it has, it it has this mask around the receptor binding site that the antibody is attached to, this thing that it can change over time. So the virus actually has to do two things at the same time. It has to keep that receptor binding site conserved so it can do its job. And it has to be able to change its mask right around the receptor binding site so that antibodies that used to be able to bind to it can't bind anymore, so it can reinfect us again. It used to be that people thought that when it changed to escape the immune system, the virus changed something like four of these amino acids that make up the mask. turns out there's about 130 amino acids that make up the head of this protein, what people thought the mask was previous work said that you had to change four places on this mask to escape immunity, to be able to reinfect people. Well, we found out that it's not four that the virus changes, four out of 130. It's actually just a single amino acid in just one of seven positions. Oh. And we were really surprised to find that. And we were even more intrigued when we found out that those seven positions where it it has changed over the last 40-odd years were all right next to the receptor binding site. Oh, my. Yes. This gives us a fantastic clue for how the virus is evolving. Firstly, that's the worst place the virus could possibly choose to change, because it's changing right on the rim of this thing it needs to conserve. Of course, well, that's not true. The worst place it could change is right in the receptor binding site. Mm -hmm. But if it did that, the receptor binding site wouldn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. But instead of changing in one of these other 130-odd places on its surface, it changes right next to the receptor binding site. It can change those other 130 places, and it can escape antibodies by doing that. And it does that in the laboratory. But in nature... It only changes these ones that are right next to the receptor bindings. At least it's only those changes that really matter. What we realize from this is that, firstly, it wouldn't change those if it didn't have to, because it's a terrible place for the virus to actually change, right next to the one thing it needs to conserve. So, firstly, we learn that it probably really has to change those amino acids, otherwise it would change others. And that tells us that the antibodies that really matter are probably the ones that are right targeted at the receptor binding site. But antibodies are a bit bigger than the receptor binding site, so they also overlap that rim where the virus changes. So it tells us where most of the immunity is probably directed, at the receptor binding site. And that's why the virus has to change right next to the receptor binding site. It also tells us maybe why influenza virus evolution is so slow. Now, that's a strange thing to say, just, uh, just because we said before that it changes and it can reinfect the same people, but it might take the virus two or three or four years to change to escape immunity. Well, if it just takes a single amino acid substitution to do that, just one mutation, then why doesn't it do that every year? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't it do it every month? Mm-hmm. And so perhaps the real question to understand this evolution is not why does it change so quickly, but why does it change so slowly? In fact, a fabulous now-retired virologist from the Netherlands, Jan de Jong, about 12 years ago said that to me. And I've thought about it ever since. And in fact, Jan is a co-author on this paper, mm-hmm. not only because he was involved scientifically, but it actually potentially really answers this puzzle about flu virus evolution, that maybe the reason why flu virus doesn't change more quickly is because it has to change close to its receptor binding site. And by doing that, it distorts its receptor binding site a little bit. And so it has to figure out just the right trade-off between distorting the receptor binding site enough to change and not distorting it too much so that it doesn't work anymore. So even though it's only one amino acid at a time, it's really a critical one. And that maybe either before or after it makes this change, it also has to make other changes that don't help it escape immunity, but help restore the structure of the receptor binding site so that it can efficiently glob on to what it attaches.
0: Are you alluding to some soul within this virus because you are
2: somewhat I am saying it in that way of course this is not what's happening as you know very well all that's happening is just random mutations and the viruses that happen to achieve this Uh are the ones that survive and that are selected for and go on into next generations the usual evolutionary processes, but you're absolutely right. I was talking about it as if the virus knew what yeah, it was you were, doing. you were. You getting a bit, <laughs> a bit carried away with your things.
0: What sort of tools does today's virologist use?
2: Well, all sorts of things. For this particular study, it was a very interesting combination of laboratory work, manipulating the virus, putting in mutations, sometimes generating antibodies to that virus and seeing oh. what those antibodies are like measuring how much the virus changes when mutations are introduced, together with computational and mathematical analyses to understand those changes at at high resolution, and also to try to figure out exactly what these changes are doing. Now, a lot of figuring out what they're doing is future work, but we had to do some of that for this paper as well. And also taking advantage to really fabulous seminal work that was done about 30 years ago of looking at the crystal structure of this hemagglutinin protein so that we knew we could figure out which amino acids were the critical ones that the virus had changed. But to know that they're right next to the receptor binding site, we had to stand on the shoulders of those great scientists in the past who had figured out the structure of this hemagglutinin protein.
0: Trying to find what really counts. You know, that's needle in a haystack stuff.
2: Yes, it is. That's right. That's right. Uh, maybe something like 500 for the hemagglutinin in total, about 130 that are the ones that are on the surface, and then nailing that down. And a really great Ph.D. student, Bjorn Kuhl, cool. oh. he did really a, a, a tour de force in his Ph.D., figuring out which of these many amino acids that changed were the critical ones for escaping immunity. And he did a lot of work, and I think he probably made about 500 different viruses to figure this out. Looking over the historical evolution of of one of the main types of flu right from 1968, which was when that type of flu last entered humans through to the present day.
0: Of all the, you know, you couldn't have picked a more popular... Topic?
2: Could you not? Well, flu is a popular disease because we all get it from time to time, and it is indeed one of the reasons why we do work on it because it is a pathogen that causes so much morbidity and mortality. Fortunately, it's also one, as I mentioned before, that we can manipulate in the lab, and that we can use to study these basic evolutionary trade-off principles, and now look to see if this is also happening with oh, other pathogens that it would have been that less is already known about so it would have potentially been more difficult to figure out now we know what we're looking for we can look for in these other pathogens too
0: flu doesn't scare me so much because I never felt it was ever going to kill me but you mentioned some other things which are pretty nasty which have this mutatability whatever. The
2: that's right, HIV and malaria for example scary stuff those two. this is scary stuff too Yeah, And flu is scary as well for people who are at risk. So people who, for example, who already have respiratory problems, maybe they already have asthma, or people who already have, say, diabetes or kidney problems, people who have maybe heart problems, because flu really knocks people off their feet for three or four days. And if the system is already weakened from something else, it can be a second hit and also with very young kids, pregnant women, and people once they get into their later 60s and on from there. And one of the reasons is because flu knocks us off our feet and when we're knocked off our feet and in bed, you know, sometimes people get pneumonia after they have flu. And when people die from flu, they actually usually die from pneumonia Oh, wow. And we're sort of more perhaps afraid of pneumonia. But the susceptibility to pneumonia comes as a result of them having flu, really them being just red raw in their throat, losing a lot of the mucus that's in their throat, and then that's susceptible to bacterial infections that can get deeper into their lungs. I know what you mean, that it is easy to be more afraid of HIV and malaria and dengue and enterovirus 71 and things like this that are more Asian diseases but are also nasty than flu. But flu is also pretty nasty. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's much more in your life, isn't it, really? I mean, yes. Malaria is much less in our
2: less It's in, less in our life, yeah.
0: I go to the doctor each year, shall we say, to go and pick up my flu jab. That must be a different vaccine every year, must it not?
2: Occasional years, it's exactly the same vaccine, but many years, it's a different vaccine. That's right. And in fact, what happens is because the virus is evolving, there are thousands of people around the world who are involved in tracking the evolution of the virus. It's really an incredible network orchestrated by the World Health Organization. In over 100 countries around the world, samples are taken from people in doctor's offices or hospitals that look like they have flu. And are sent to a so-called National Influenza Laboratory, a World Health Organization National Influenza Laboratory in that country. If it is flu, then some of those samples are sent to one of five international centers that analyze these very carefully. There's one in Tokyo, Melbourne, Australia, Atlanta in the United States, Beijing, China, and one in London. And at those laboratories, they specialize in very, very careful laboratory analyses of these viruses. And we're very lucky that over the last 10 years, we have very close collaborations with this network, and in particular, those five specialist laboratories. And when they generate their data today, as well as analyzing it carefully within their laboratory, they also send it to our laboratory. And we meet with the directors of all of those centers at the world health organization twice a year as part of this who process to decide which strains of flu should be in the vaccine and we do that for the vaccine that we get shot up with here in the northern hemisphere just before wintertime so that's sort of around about now or the last you know the, the last couple of months that's a vaccine choice that is made in february every year just 8 months before We'd like to make it later than February, but there has to be time for about 350 million doses of vaccine to be manufactured, packaged, delivered, wow. people to get to their GPs, get vaccinated, their immunity build up after the vaccine. Yes, the vaccine can change from year to year, which is why it's recommended that people who are at risk should be revaccinated to protect them against flu. And many times the vaccine works just fine. Sometimes it doesn't work quite so well. That's typically in years when, in the period from when we've made the vaccine choice in February, that by the time we actually need to use that immunity a year later, the virus has changed. And this is also why we and other laboratories are not only trying to understand this evolution from a scientific interest, but if we can understand it well enough to be able to predict it, then, when we, in the future, if it's predictable, when we choose the vaccine, we can choose the vaccine for the viruses that would be circulating about a year later. And that would be a fantastic feat if it could be done. And, you know, the magic prediction horizon there for the public health impact is about, is about one year because we choose the strain in February for people to be protected the following winter. So it is a piece of basic science. Nobody's been able to predict evolution before, certainly not in any form of complex domain like this. And if it could be done, then not only would it be good science, it would also be good public health as well.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Derek. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.
1: Many thanks to Professor Derek Smith of the University of Cambridge. We'll post links to your research on our podcast page.
0: Thanks. Chris, what do you think? Should we try to bust some myths about the flu?
1: (laughs) Yes, let's. I've got one right here. So, Roger, when you have the flu, getting an antibiotic prescription can help you get better faster. What do you think? Is that science fact or fiction?
0: I think it's fiction. I think that the flu is caused by a virus and antibiotics will only kill
1: Mm, Well done, Roger. I think it's a good opportunity to remind ourselves that because antibiotics don't tackle the flu virus, as you said, there's no point in asking for them at the doctors. So I think sleep and soup is where it's at for me. I should say there's one caveat though.
0: Okay, what's that?
1: Yeah, well, sometimes we can get a bacterial infection while we're sick with the flu. And in that case, your doctor might help you out with an antibiotic, but that's for the bacteria. So to help deal with your flu, you could ask for an antiviral medication.
0: And what's the big thing about? Antiviral medicines. Then.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, well, they don't cure your flu. They just help you make you less infectious to others and they might reduce the length of time that you feel sick.
0: Okay, well, less flu would be much nicer and you wouldn't be infecting the people you live and work with.
1: <laughs> yes, all good points. But you have to move quickly to get these antiviral meds. I think that's the catch because I think you have to take them within a day or two of your first flu symptoms.
0: Well, I've got my flu jab. but I'm still going to stay on the lookout for sniffs and fevers and chills and achy muscles. Speaking of that, do you think now that getting a flu jab would be giving you the flu? Is that science facts or fiction?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Well, I think that's fiction too, isn't it? And probably a reason why lots of people unnecessarily avoid the flu jab.
0: Okay, you're right, Chris, because there's some confusion because of the differences between what's called a live and what's called an inactive vaccine. But either way, the flu vaccine doesn't actually give you the flu.
1: Good point. So explain why, Roger?
0: Well, in common flu vaccine, the virus is inactivated, which means it's killed off by something like heat or formaldehyde so it can't replicate or at least do those nasty things that it does it's just stuff that's recognized by your immune system so that you can have a strong immune response if ever you get infected
1: right right and then there's the live virus vaccine which is attenuated exactly
0: attenuated means weakened or turned down and you know about this stuff chris Mm -hmm. because scientists weaken the flu virus used in live vaccines.
1: Yeah, well, I know there are a few different methods that they can use to do that, and I think they all make the virus less harmful. One method is to grow lots of the virus, and then they select the very weakest strains, and this way they reproduce really slowly, so your immune system can deal with them quickly and you don't actually get sick.
0: And there's a more invasive way of weakening the virus too?
1: Yep, scientists can mutate or remove particular genes required for virulence, which also weakens the flu virus for a live vaccine.
0: Right, so the idea is that the live flu virus vaccine relies on a weak flu virus and a strong immune system that gets rid of the flu quickly. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually get sick from this vaccine.
1: Yes, but we should mention there's also an exception for people with a compromised immune system. For instance, if you have HIV, there's always the chance that the flu can revert to a more virulent form and become too formidable an opponent for a weak immune system.
0: Okay, well I'm sure your doctor knows which one to give you.
1: Yeah, good to check.
0: But otherwise, whether you get the attenuated or the inactive flu vaccine, neither will give you the flu.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Roger. And for more myth-busting about the flu, we'll post a link to this NHS page on our podcast page. In the meantime, let's all try and stay healthy.
0: Agreed. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.